Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Deirdre Shaw, and I am the author of Love or Something Like It. Like the protagonist of the book, I grew up in New York, and I moved to Los Angeles for love. When I arrived, the world of Hollywood both mesmerized and intimidated me. But soon after I arrived, my boyfriend and I went to a party where we struck up a friendship with another couple who just happened to be famous musicians. The first chapter of the novel, which I'm about to read to you, was inspired by that experience. The chapter is called The Summertime Party. The first time we got lost on the way, winding up into the hills, crawling by mailboxes, peering at house numbers, finally spotting the gates by complete accident, the valet practically hiding in the bushes for God's sakes. Inside, the host greeted us. He was Toby's boss and the host of a late-night TV show, and after shaking my hand, he immediately spirited Toby away to an alcove and spoke to him in earnest tones about the day before's diminished ratings. I moved aside and stood awkwardly alone by the bar, trying not to look in the direction of any celebrities, who, it seemed to me, considered it an affront if a layperson so much as glanced at them. This, I suspected, was why they had gathered in celebrity-only clumps around the house, though I had the sense that their behavior was in particular to this party. There was one such clump on the patio by the pool, just outside the open French doors where they were all huddled together on several chaise lounges. The retired but still beautiful 1970s model, the former Saturday Night Live cast member, a young movie actor whose cachet, like that of a wealthy fraternity boy, was somehow increased by his being known as an asshole. I made these identifications only after several furtive glances, and soon felt I couldn't risk another, so I spent the rest of the time reading the labels on the bottles of wine sitting on the bar. Finally, Toby reappeared along with the host, who stuck his hand out to shake mine. "'Nice to meet you,' he said slickly, barely looking at me, and when I said out of reflex, "'Oh, but we've already,' he stopped me and said without a smile, "'I'm just kidding.'" I was 29 and had only just moved to Hollywood, having met and fallen in love with Toby eight months earlier while he was visiting New York. I'd been in the audience at a comedy club where he was doing stand-up. He'd heckled me from the stage, then come up to me afterward to apologize. This was my first celebrity party. So though it annoyed me that if people spoke to me at all, they did it while constantly scanning the room for someone of higher stature to talk to, being annoyed by it was a cliché. It was what everyone had complained about when I'd asked them what Hollywood was like. And so I moved past it and instead took in the room with a sense of gratitude. This was the kind of party that I had previously only managed to spy on via the pages of InStyle magazine. I was lucky just to be here, I told myself, and being here was enough. Toby and I kept mainly to ourselves that night. We spoke only with a few other lowly talk show writers— Toby was a TV writer, and outside of Hollywood, his job monopolized conversations. I was a newspaper reporter with the education beat, 
an occupation that guaranteed my status here as a nobody. We ate alone at a candlelit table out by the pool, and then we smoked cigarettes on the front patio, eyeing the celebrities as they came and went along the steep front steps. We left early that night, thanking the host and skittering down the granite steps, bursting with a strange feeling of relief that we were young and undiscovered. But it was Toby's boss's party, and this man, possessing an astonishingly mistaken sense of his own permanence in the town, had made it clear that he had a vision. His parties would become Hollywood legends, the town's hottest tickets. A few months later, another invitation appeared in the mail, and so we went. Nice to meet you, said the host again, but this time it wasn't a joke, and I just shook his hand and smiled. I drank too much early in the evening so I could get up the nerve to look at the celebrities, and I hid in a corner talking about elementary schools with the unfamous wife of a famous movie actor. Later, Toby came to get me to smoke a cigarette, and we stood with a few other writers on the small front patio listening to the chatter of the guests inside the house. Again, I felt the silent rules. The unspectacular people should gather here, should speak only when spoken to. Three months had passed since I'd moved to Hollywood, and I had spent them mainly covering school board meetings for a tiny neighborhood paper in Pacific Palisades. Toby and I had been nesting at home. At night, we cooked and watched movies and cuddled on the couch. Now I wondered how Toby fared in this town of secrets that lay so close to the surface. A 4-3-7 on a Wednesday night and the demo's a 3, I'd heard earlier as I'd passed through the living room. What could it mean? I imagined Hollywood as a brick castle. Outsiders circled it, looking for a door. Once you knew the password, a trap door opened, a magical world revealed. Now I looked at Toby in his preppy white shirt and khakis. He was so sweet and fresh. The men at this party wore black shirts with black ties. They knew something that Toby didn't, I thought, but I didn't know what. Just then the door to the patio swung open, and we looked up, and there was Merv Griffin. He wore a green sport coat, and he had a thin brown cigarillo in his hand. He approached us, and Toby offered him a light. Thank you, said Merv, and then he was quiet. Did you come to the last one, I asked him, because no one else said anything. He looked at me. I did, my dear, and it was just as awful as this one. I let out a barking laugh, and he laughed too. Then the patio door opened again, and a man stepped out and then a woman. I recognized them immediately. They were a young couple, both pop singers, eccentric, very cool. They were known, but not by the masses. Their fans were people who listened to more than Top 40. They had been popular when I was in college. The girl wore a pinstriped ochre suit with an ochre tie, her purposely stringy black hair and nerdy glasses still not able to obscure her beauty. His retro gray suit was reminiscent of flapper days. They were dressed by Hollywood standards. But they were awkward and self-conscious. They lit their cigarettes and looked at the ground. Their evident insecurity, coupled with my confident afterglow from talking with Merv, made me turn and say stupidly, I guess there's no chance of getting you guys to sing for us tonight, huh? The guy looked at me coolly. You're kidding, right? I turned away. I was humiliated. My cheeks burned. But then I thought, well, who the hell are they, really? Washed-up singers. I'll never see them again anyway. 
But later in the evening, when Toby and I took our plates from the buffet and walked up a few steps onto the patio by the pool looking for a table, there they were, the only ones sitting at a table set for ten. Should we? I whispered to Toby, staring straight ahead. Why not? he said with a shrug. So we went and sat down with them, leaving a seat between her and me. We introduced ourselves using first names only, and they did the same, Charlotte and Jack. We somehow began chatting about the high divorce rate among the party guests, which led me to ask if they were married, though of course I knew very well from reading people that they were. They had married in Hollywood a few years earlier in a suite at the Chateau Marmont. She had worn a blood-red dress. And they began to tell us about their wedding, how his brother, also a famous musician, had brought his horrible children, and they had tipped over the cake and how they therefore strongly advised us were we to ever marry, not to invite children to our wedding, at which we all laughed and Toby said, at least not your brother's children. And then somehow, suddenly, we began to hit it off. They admitted their suspicion that they were being used, invited to this party just to lend the host a little edge, and they didn't know why they continued to come because they didn't know how to handle themselves with all these mainstream celebrities. And we laughed, and Toby said, eh, it ain't that hard. And I watched with pride how at ease Toby seemed in the conversation with celebrities. And then later, when Merv came up the stairs looking for a seat, for some reason, he took the one in between Charlotte and me. And then he gave Toby and me advice on where to go on an upcoming vacation. The French Riviera will bore you to tears, he announced. Try Italy or Ibiza instead. And then more celebrities came over and sat down until the very host himself came with his plate and sat, having decreed ours the best table in the house. This ain't so bad, huh? Toby leaned over and said to Charlotte and Jack at one point and winked. And they laughed and I could tell they agreed. They were having fun now, thanks to us. Later, the four of us went inside to the great room by the grand piano, and we all sat on a couch together, and I was drunk. How come you don't have any children, I asked, realizing at once how inappropriate it was, but pushing on anyway. They talked about how hard it was being on the road away from each other, and I admitted that never in my life had I imagined I would be at a party like this. Then Merv appeared and walked down into the sunken room, he winked at Charlotte and me and took a seat at the piano. The room quieted. That was the first time Merv played the piano at one of these parties, as he did afterward for several years. And back then, in the early part of 2002, at the beginning of a new century, Merv was so unhip he was hip, and it was seen as sort of a kitschy coup to have an outdated celebrity perform. It made the night seem special, a treat of a lifetime, something you might tell your grandkids about. It conjured up old Hollywood, everyone pressed into the overflowing and dramatic great room with its huge dark wood beams and bookshelves and of old-fashioned innocent pleasure. He even played Piano Man and we all sang along, including Charlotte and Jack. You could look openly around the room at everyone. No one was in the bathroom doing coke or slinking around dark corners talking up starlets. That was also the night that summertime became a tradition at the party. It all started with Merv at the piano enjoying his comeback, the room quiet just for him, when an Irish girl, she was almost middle-aged by Hollywood standards, probably in her early 30s, and dowdy, a little heavy, wearing an ill-fitting green taffeta dress. She stood up and said, Merv, Merv, may I sing one? 
No one knew what to do then. There was a feeling that something very distasteful had just occurred. And Merv said a little rudely, Darling, do you know who I am? But that didn't faze her at all. She stared back at him full on and said, Come on, love, just one. And we all stared at him, waiting for his reaction. And then someone booed. And then there came a chorus of boos. And Merv, apparently feeling he had somehow egged the crowd on into this impolite territory and now needed to make up for it, shushed the room and held his hand out gallantly to the girl. What shall I play, he asked. Summertime, she said, and he began to play. The young asshole movie actor immediately stood up and left the room, making a great show of it. A couple starlets followed him out, but everyone else stayed. Summertime and the living is easy, the girl bellowed. She had a very decent voice, deep and strong, but I was embarrassed for her. My cheeks burned as if I were the one singing. I could barely look at her. And when she finished, Merv shook her hand and kissed her cheek and then stepped away from the piano, saying he'd had enough, and then we all blamed the end of Merv singing on her. The four of us headed outside for a cigarette, Charlotte critiquing the girl's range, and about ten minutes later Merv stepped out too and stood with us smoking his little cigarillo. Charlotte and Jack began to clap for him, their cigarettes dangling from their mouths, and Toby said, "'Bravo, you were very gentlemanly.' Yes, well done in there, Merv, I added. And Merv Griffin looked down at me as if trying to recall where he had seen me before. My Genevieve is here, he said out of nowhere. And then he looked over his shoulder down onto the street. There was a golden Rolls Royce there, its back window open halfway, and a little white dog had its head out, panting heavily and looking sprightly around. Genevieve, Merv called. Come here, girl. She looked up at him and started to bark, and then a driver stepped out of the front door and opened the back door, and then the little dog jumped down from the seat and ran through the open gate and up the steps, breaking two of the little glass candle holders that lined the darkened stairway on the way up. She found Merv and jumped at him up on his legs. He reached down, picked her up, and said, Ah, my little Jenny. That moment to me felt magical and I suspended the scene in my mind so I could go back and play it again and again like an old movie. Merv's glance down at the rolls, the driver slowly stepping out of the car in a crisp white shirt, the little dog bravely jumping up the steep steps, and the reunion shot of little Genevieve jumping into Merv's arms. In the slow-motion background, Charlotte and Jack were laughing at something Toby had just said, and Toby was petting the dog in Merv's arms, and they were all smiling. And suddenly the evening inspired a glossy déjà vu, like a lovely and familiar drug, and though I almost refused to acknowledge it, I could feel a nostalgia for the evening already setting in, a longing just for the existence of this night building before my eyes. But after a while I sensed that Toby was growing tired, and I knew that even though the party was still in full swing, it was perhaps only midnight, soon he would say he wanted to go home. I knew that Toby was not as impressed by celebrity as I was. He worked for a celebrity, after all, wrote his jokes, met the stars who came on his show. They're people just like you and me, he said. He had promised me that I would get used to it the way he had, and in fact his confident sense of belonging to this world was part of what had attracted me to him in the first place. But though his shrugging off of fame was appealing, I had a hard time imagining ever doing it myself." 
And so now, when, after a few minutes, Toby yawned and said he wanted to go home, I couldn't stop myself from feeling resentful. We told Charlotte and Jack we were leaving, and she said we should all get together sometime, and I said by all means we should, and they walked us to the door and we said goodbye. In the car, I didn't look at Toby as I said softly, Why would you drag me out of a party like that? When will I ever get to be with people like that again? Toby looked at me for a while. Smooch, he said, using our shared nickname. She gave me their number. What? He took a small piece of paper from the inside pocket of his jacket, Charlotte and Jacket said, and their phone number. I gave her ours, too, he said. Jesus, I said. Well, we can't call them. Why not, he said. Of course we can. What would we talk about? What would we invite them to? But three days later, the phone rang, and it was Charlotte inviting us to dinner. What? I said when Toby told me. On Thursday night, Pane Vino, 8 p.m. First of all, I said, whoever actually goes through with calling other couples when they meet them at parties, even if they do ask for their number. So, we liked them, and they liked us. They're celebrities, for God's sakes. Don't they have enough friends? What do they want with us? We went. It was awkward. I was terribly nervous. My mouth was paralyzed. I was too afraid even to get drunk, and they were big talkers. Analyzed everything. Didn't want to talk about anything unless it was something they could tear apart. Religion, U.S. imperialism, Toby's boss, and whether he was gay. That one for about 45 minutes. If I said anything, they seized upon it and questioned me. Why was I a Democrat? Did I even really know what the word Democrat meant? They were independents, of course. I felt scrutinized, studied, paid attention to. I started to feel like I just wanted to get out of there before I said anything stupid. When the check came, I smiled for the first time all night. That was awful, I said to Toby in the car on the way home. Awful. We'll never hear from them again. I don't even want to hang out with them again anyway. Jesus Christ, I felt like I was at some shrink session or something. Well, to be honest, Toby said, I'm kind of relieved. At least they weren't trying to recruit us for some weird sex thing or drug thing. I laughed and agreed, but in the back of my mind I knew why I was being disdainful. I'd blown it. My anxiety at dinner had been palpable. I'd been too quiet, too timid, not interesting enough. But then, a few days later, the phone rang. It was Charlotte. Would we like to get together again? And Toby and I looked at each other with wonder and exhilaration. We went to dinner at their huge home in Silver Lake, a hip area of town which seemed to fit their image as chic outsiders. And then somehow we became friends. I started to like them. They invited us to hear them sing at a small bar, even put us on the guest list, and we had dinners at our place and theirs. Museums, movies, art parties, and weird stupid benefit parties that they liked to go to just to make fun of the crowd. Toby started to drop their names sometimes. Our friends Charlotte James and Jack Sheet, he would say with an anticipatory smile, eating up the look people gave us. But I felt this betrayed them, that they wouldn't like it, that we were friends with them despite their celebrity. Charlotte paid particular attention to me, almost as if she was trying to show me that it was okay that I wasn't a celebrity, that she was above all that, that she liked me for who I was. She went out of her way to tell me, things she knew I would be interested in. Lacey, I went to New York and met Dave Eggers, she said one night from the backseat of our car, on the way to a silent movie, one of their penchants that fit their eccentric image. When she spoke directly to me, used my name, I felt a warm light on me. She had singled me out. I was special. 
She had a lovely, lilting voice with a slight southern accent that was even more pronounced when she sang. I listened to her albums constantly. They were both cynical yet terribly earnest, and they would drone on for far too long about uninteresting esoteric topics. He, in particular, had done a lot of reading and could talk in depth about completely random topics, like Asian cults and unknown circus performers. When I brought up Scientology one night, for instance, they got so excited it was hard for them to stay in their seats. The history of it, the evil of it, the attempts to silence any criticism, its leaders, the celebrities who believed and why they did, it all came tumbling out and they spoke on top of each other, stopping only to hear our questions on and on until at one point my mind actually drifted and then I suddenly snapped back into myself, wondering madly if I had missed anything important, if my nods had been convincing. I wondered if this was why they needed friends. Perhaps it was a deep, deep flaw. Perhaps they were sort of crazy and everyone in Hollywood knew it except us. But there was, too, something so appealing and disarming about their enthusiasm. It was real. They spoke to us as if we were their friends, as if, of course, it was worth it for them to expend all this energy in order to change our minds about satanic cults. They were famous, and so they had famous friends. In their living room, late at night, at their intimate parties, we were regularly stunned to walk in and shake hands with our favorite musicians, our teen idols. Everybody in the music world seemed to roll into town and end up at Charlotte and Jack's, where they mainly sat around and played guitar and ate Chinese food and talked about gigs and shows and told stories from the road. No one questioned our presence. Charlotte and Jack had accepted us, so we were automatically cool. There were several nights when we sat on their couch, our mouths practically open in shock. Even jaded Toby was finally starstruck. As the candles burned low and some of the biggest rock stars in the world sat across from us and harmonized, tried out new chords, came up with new lyrics, asked for our opinions. Charlotte was the queen. She ruled the scene and managed the comings and goings of an ever-changing group, and she preferred change, I noticed. She liked diversity, a new face, the mystique of a stranger in the room. As a result, she regularly tried people on for a while, but then quickly let them go. They would be around for a couple weeks or so and then vanish. At first, I felt threatened by these new presences, funky young singers, sophisticated actresses, the hot new couple on the scene. But eventually and unfailingly, they would not be invited back. Too much of a show-off, she would confide to me at the end of the night. Or... I didn't like how she said goodbye, lingering at the door for 15 minutes. Shoo. They all disappeared. Everyone except for Toby and me. For a while, I lived in perpetual fear, waiting for the axe to fall, but it never did. After a time, Toby came to accept their friendship with us, but I continued to question it. What could they possibly want with us? We were plebeians, mortals, nobodies. I had no answer, and Toby became impatient with my questioning. They like us, okay? Get over it. They're not gods. And then slowly I began to admit something to myself, something vain and secret, something I never would have spoken aloud. Maybe I was the attraction. Maybe I was the reason Charlotte and Jack liked us. I had always suspected deep down that I had a special glow about me, a charm that made men fall in love with me and women want to be my friends. Charlotte and Jack's friendship with us was a natural consequence. I thought of my little life back in New York, working in a windowless cubicle for a small weekly paper, falling in and out of short-lived relationships, occasionally having a nice dinner with my dad whenever he was in town. I had just been waiting for someone to notice me for my real life to begin, and now it had. 
Toby had plucked me from my own obscurity and brought me out here into the sun. Now I told myself that it was only a matter of time until I too would become a star, surrounded by interesting people, adorned with beautiful things, enriched by creative work, bathed in a spotlight that illuminated my most fascinating and heretofore hidden qualities. I sat in Charlotte's living room late at night, my eyes glassy from pot or the late hour, and I looked around at the stars and I thought smugly, I have as much right to be here as anyone else. And then, without warning, just as quickly and as headily as it had all begun, it ended. It was about three months after we'd become friends with Charlotte and Jack. Toby's 30th birthday was approaching, and I had planned a big party for him. I sent out invitations a couple of weeks before, and as the date neared, I was busy ordering the food and confirming numbers with the bar. Then, two days before the party, I realized that Charlotte and Jack hadn't RSVP'd. "'Have you heard from them?' I asked Toby." Not in the past few days, he said. I don't understand, I said. Does this mean they're not coming? Toby said they would be there. He reminded me that they weren't exactly etiquette conscious. They were rock stars, after all. But they were coming, he assured me. Why wouldn't they? I decided to call them anyway. Perhaps they hadn't received the invitation. Perhaps they had forgotten. They didn't answer. I left a message. They didn't call back. I don't know what to do, I said to Toby. What should we do? He shrugged. Either they'll show or they won't. His cool enraged me. Why did I have to carry this weight of anxiety while he could just let things go? Stop letting everything roll off your back, I thought. Feel something, care. Yet at the same time I coveted his casual attitude, wished I could feel nothing too. The night of Toby's birthday arrived, the party was held at a chic bar in West Hollywood, and I was distracted all night keeping my eye on the door, waiting for Charlotte and Jack to arrive. But they never showed. I sent them an email the following week, a cheery one, as if nothing had happened. We missed you at Toby's 30th. The late-night antics definitely beat out charades. We had all played a horribly reluctant game of charades at our place one night, at Toby's and my drunken insistence. I heard nothing back. I called and left a message, nothing. I checked their websites. They weren't on tour. Weeks and then months went by, and we never heard from them. And after a while, it became clear that Charlotte and Jack had dropped us. I didn't know why. Our last contact with them had been innocuous enough. We'd seen them for dinner, had discussed her upcoming album. I didn't understand it, and I was devastated. Why do you think they're mad at us? I asked Toby at least once a day. What could we have done? I went back in my mind. Maybe Jack was annoyed that we had forced them to play charades that night. Or maybe someone had told them that Toby had gone around dropping their names— and slowly, quietly, secretly, I became angry at Toby. I blamed him. This was his fault. They had sensed his nonchalance, and it had pushed them away. Sometimes when I looked at him lounging on the couch, I almost hated him. When he leaned over to kiss me, I had to will myself not to pull away. Toby felt this and became frustrated. What's the matter with you, he said. I grasped for a way to explain my unhappiness. She listened to me was all I could come up with. I told her Neil Young was my favorite singer, and she gave me that CD of her playing with him. You have plenty of other friends who listen to you, Smooch. But I like Charlotte and Jack. Toby looked at me and sighed. It's not about Charlotte and Jack, he said. It's about the fact that she knew Neil Young. It's about the fact that they were celebrities. I can't believe you would say something like that, I said, pretending to be hurt, but I knew he was right. Then I defended myself— 
I couldn't help it if they had succeeded in wooing me, I told him. They were stars, after all. They had charisma, that special something that makes people famous. The whole world had fallen in love with them. How was I to help falling for them, too? Why had they done it? Why had they made me fall in love with them and then left? Was it some kind of game to them? Was it all a game out here, and I just didn't know the rules? Driving by clubs on Sunset Boulevard, I was taunted by their names and lights. Once you had VIP access here, the sign said. Once you were a somebody, not anymore. I had been elevated and then lowered back down. I began to fear that I had already reached my peak in this town, that my whole life from now on would be anticlimactic, one big letdown. I had unknowingly squandered my 15 minutes of fame. I had had my chance at being forever inside the velvet rope and lost it. I thought then of leaving L.A., of moving back east to my little apartment and my nothing job. What was I doing here, after all? This was all a farce. I didn't belong. It wasn't my town. I was an interloper, sneaking in on Toby's coattails. Yet I could not go. I felt I had started something I hadn't finished, or hadn't mastered something I was supposed to learn, and it was too late for leaving anyway. Toby and I were in love. I stayed. I focused on work. Toby made me laugh. I moved on. Then one bright summer day, several months later, I went innocently to check the mail, and there it was, a white envelope with familiar black script, an invitation, another summertime party. I clutched the envelope to my chest. I breathed a sigh of relief, and I began to lay awake nights, imagining seeing them again. Toby said we shouldn't go. I don't want to see you get hurt, he said, looking at me with concern. Are you crazy? I snapped. We have to go. The night of the party, while dressing, I felt ill from anticipation. I had a glass of wine at home and smoked a cigarette. God, I'm being absurd, I said and laughed nervously, but when I tried to stand, I couldn't get out of the chair and had to endure a half hour of Toby's attempts to convince me that it was no big deal. They were just flaky, that was all. If they were there, it would be great to see them. There was nothing to be nervous about. In the car, I smoked more cigarettes, and I made a stop at the gas station so I could buy more. I don't want to run out, I said. Well, I don't think there's a chance of that, Toby said when I came out, clutching two packs. For a moment, I hoped fervently that they wouldn't be there, that I wouldn't have to avoid them. I couldn't bear the thought of having to face them and their lame excuses. And then I nearly prayed that they would be there, that maybe there was some explanation. Maybe one of them had had an accident or been sick. Maybe they had been on some kind of last-minute tour and cut off from their phone, email, and mail. Or maybe they had had an awful fight and nearly divorced and hadn't wanted to see anyone they knew for a while. But now they were all mended and ready to resume their social lives. And in fact, they wanted to see us immediately. In fact, they had so hoped to see us at the party so they could apologize in person for not coming to Toby's birthday party because they were, they really were, so terribly, terribly sorry. Inside, the host greeted us. I told him how nice it was to meet him, then moved into the great room, sweeping it quickly with eyes down. I didn't see them. We went to the bar where I had a full view of the celebrity clump out by the pool, not there. I saw Merv, and he said hello and promised that his dog Genevieve would make an appearance later. I started to relax. Then Toby's voice, friendly, a greeting, Hey! And there was Jack. I watched them hug. Shyly looked at Jack's face. He seemed genuinely pleased to see us. So sorry we haven't seen you, he began. 
We've both been in the studio and we haven't seen anyone really. We've been like cave dwellers. It's okay, I said happily, flooded with relief. My smile came back for the first time in what felt like months. My heart released, I soared. Is Charlotte here? I asked. And suddenly, there she was. Hello, Lacey, she sang, and her golden glow surrounded me, bathing me in the warm night, and I smiled in slow motion, and she hugged me, and I was happy, insanely happy, strangely giddily happy. But then she touched Jack's arm, and he looked down at her and then back at us. Oh, excuse us for one sec, he said, and then, we'll catch up with you later? They turned to go. I watched them, and then I couldn't help myself. Wait, I called. Charlotte. I thought she wasn't going to turn back, but finally she did, and when she did, she looked at me coolly, a quick glance up and down, the way I'd seen her do with the people she inevitably cut the next day. I was out, and there was nothing to be done about it. She stared at me for a moment more, then turned again. They walked off. I looked at Toby. I knew my mouth was open. He shrugged. I moved through the rest of the party like a heartbroken lover. I stood in corners smoking and drained glass after glass of wine. I wanted to leave. I couldn't bring myself to leave. Finally, mercifully, it was time for Merv to sing, and Toby began to steer me toward the great room. But I saw them sitting in there on the same couch we had sat on those months ago, and I turned away. You go ahead, I told Toby. I'll be in the bathroom. Instead, I hung back and listened to Merv, and I watched them down there, but they didn't look at me. I was just a blip. I saw Toby sweetly standing across the room near the patio doors. It was time for summertime, and a nobody starlet was going to sing it. There was a buzz in the room, and suddenly I wanted to go stand next to Toby, my sweet, good, innocent Toby, the Toby I knew, the Toby who knew me. I felt myself moving forward into the great room, and then I felt a white heat on me. I was blinded by the spotlight. I couldn't see a thing, couldn't see Toby anymore. My heart was pounding, and I was frozen. Everyone began to clap. They thought I was the singer, and I looked blankly out at where I knew the crowd was, out at the great sea of everything, the world of possibility, and I waved my hands, no, no. And then I took one small step backward out of the light. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.